Well, hello there, and welcome to Fuzz on Film. This is our October 2018 intermission episode. That's the slot in which we talk about the stuff, what we've done seen. I'm Scott. <laughs> no, why did I do that? I've done that far too many times. I don't know if that's, um, you know, envy, or I'm just... <laughs> Horribly, horribly confused and broken. But yes, I am not Scott. Uh, I'm Drew. I think I'm and not so entirely convinced now. <laughs> and over there, Scott. Hello. I've never had um, identity issues in the past. <laughs> I'm just getting old and broken. Yes. Uh, and well, the usual grab bag of well, a very, very mix of films this time. Just a bit, yeah. I mean, Just about, um, put Mandy in any other film, and it's a very grand bag of films. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yes. Uh, all within the last year, though, 2017 or 2018 films, but quite the, the mishmash of genres we're covering, and whatever Mandy is. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, we're going to begin, though, with a more conventional film. Well, well to be honest... Mandy is uh, anything is more conventional than Mandy in most regards. But <laughs> let's begin with a. I guess it's a romantic comedy, Scott. Yes, very much so. Uh, which is Crazy Rich Asians, which, other than some vague stories of success in America, I didn't really have much of a frame of reference for. Um, I think I'd been anticipating that crazy and rich were entirely separate adjectives, but for most of the people we meet in this rom-com, they're crazy rich, as in the the eat-the-rich sort of way. Not that I'm suggesting we resort to cannibalism. Not yet, anyway. This is getting away from me. Right, I'm going to start again. (laughs) Uh, Constance Wu's New York-based professor of economics, Rachel Chu, deals with more than she bargains for when her boyfriend, Henry Golding's Nick Young, asks her to go back to Singapore with him for his best friend's wedding. As part of this, she'll need to meet Nick's family and friends, who, unbeknownst to Rachel, are the super-wealthy, quote-unquote, elite of Pan-Asia. Apparently lying about his background for a couple of years is just a hurdle we need to get over for a film to occur. So Rachel goes with Nick's explanation of not wanting preconceived notions or expectations of the wealthy to get in the way of the relationship. Sure, seems legit. As it happens, it's pretty much accurate, as with only a few exceptions, such as Nick's best friend, Chris Pang's Colin Ku, and fiancé Sonoya Mizun's Araminta Lee. They are a hostile shower of stuck-up brats who will be first against the ball when the revolution comes, and this is getting away from me again. Nurse! In particular, Nick's icicle-based mother, Michelle Yeoh's Eleanor Sun Young, <laughs> refuses to warm to Rachel, and before long starts playing the duty-to-your-family, take-over-the-family-business cards, while Rachel struggles to fit in amongst the quote-unquote high society she now finds herself in. She's helped by old college roommate, Okafina's Gopay Gleng, whose family is merely very, very rich, and needlessly weird for comic relief and pacing reasons, rather than the super-hyper-rich douche nozzles that the rest of the film features. Now, apparently I'm still too much Occupy Wall Street to give this much of a fair recap, so let me shortcut this by saying it's the exact same fish out of water remain true to yourself story arc that's been seen about a million times before but transplanted to a relatively novel setting. Uh, Replace the Asian super rich with the American super rich or the British aristocracy and I'm sure this all starts to sound quite familiar indeed but 
just as I can't discount the real positives of cultural representation this has had amongst the Asian American community in particular, and of course Asian British and Asian slash any other culture I assume, just as Black Panther had amongst the African American community. But this is at best a coat of paint over a well-worn formula, and really the only culture this is reflecting is that of wanted excess. I'm far too far to the left to condone that sort of thing. Aspirational? Well, I agree with the first syllable. Uh, my <laughs> politics aside, which, to be honest, I'm only given rain because there's not that much else interesting to talk about in Crazy Rich Asians, it's an entirely adequately put-together film. John M. Chews the direction it's workmanlike, but with locations this fabulous, it's hard not to make something that looks great, and the cast are, to be honest, much better than the script deserves. Constance Wu and the always reliable Michelle Yeoh carry the central struggle well, and satellite characters and storylines are all as obnoxious or sympathetic as is demanded, if not fleshed out well enough for my liking. Gemma Chan's Astrid in particular is lumbered with a totally angelic Mary Sue of a character that apparently is some sort of counterweight to the general the richer awful vibe that goes way too far in another direction and it is to Chan's great credit that the character feels at least somewhat real. Uh, much as in Ocean's 8, Aquafina steals the scene that she's in and even Ken Jong is less annoying than usual. Overall, this review is perhaps a little bit more negative than my thoughts were when leaving the cinema. I don't think this film stands up to any analysis particularly well, but as a formulaic rom-com, it's perfectly fine. The central relationships are charming enough, the, at least the setting is unfamiliar if the story isn't, and there's enough funny moments to keep it ticking along. In fact, uh, it, it is fine. I'm glad that people get enjoyment from it. And assuming the jaw-dropping Wikipedia factoid about this being the first film by a major Hollywood studio to feature a majority Asian-American cast in a modern setting since the Joy Luck Club in 1993 is correct, it's churlish to complain at all. Yet, still I do. An entirely adequate film. If you're in the mood for a rom-com, this is a, a, a very decent choice. But yeah, it, it, I find it hard to get particularly worked up about it. Yes, I... I find it hard to find any particular enthusiasm for it and what you're saying. To be honest, I'm more fighting my own particular urge to make some sort of want and excess overeating joke <laughs> in reference to what you said earlier, uh, <laughs> which I suppose I technically have done now. But <laughs> yes, it, it sounds like it would probably be entirely fine if very, very verging a bit too close to Richard Curtis territory hmm. and it's not really a film I, I particularly care to see and I have nothing to say <laughs> Fair enough Let's just crash onwards then Black Klansman? Indeed I often think that it must be well frankly exhausting to be Spike Lee <laughs> While he has produced lighter fare like Inside Man in School Days though lighter is very much a relative term with Lee, so much of his work, from the passionate and provocative Do the Right Thing, through Malcolm X and 25th Hour, to the documentary When the Levies Broke, is so short through with anger and indignation, generally of the righteous sort, of course, that it's nigh on miraculous that he hasn't, well, burst. <laughs> his films obviously form an outlet for this, and it's just as well, since the world in general, and the country of his birth in particular, never seems to slow up in giving him fuel for that fire. That righteousness could come across as preachy, and there is often something of the sermon about his work, though the fact that what he preaches about is so real and valid he usually mitigates that. That, and the fact that his films are often damn funny. All of which preamble brings us to Black Klansman, another passionate 
and timely sermon. John David Washington, son of Lee's longtime collaborator Denzel Washington, plays Ron Stallworth, the first black police officer to join the Colorado Springs Police Department. Ron has his sights set on becoming a detective, but is made to endure menial work and casual racism in the records office. After being recruited for an undercover job due to nothing more than his skin colour, he proves successful and capable, so becomes encouraged and pushes an idea for a bold and dangerous new investigation based on nothing less than his ability. And that investigation? Well, as a black police officer, infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan. (laughs) Naturally. After a phone call with a Klan recruiter goes unexpectedly well, things start moving quickly and dangerously. Initially seeking only information, Stallworth foolishly uses his real name. While he can pose as a white supremacist over the phone, despite David Duke's claims that he can identify a black man without error just from his speech, there are going to be one or two little giveaways if Ron meets the clan members in person. (laughs) So he ropes in his colleague Flip Zimmerman, played by Scott's favourite CGI creation Adam Driver, (laughs) to play the in-person half of Ron Stallworth clansman. Stallworth finds himself in a very difficult place. Caught between love of his job and love of his police-hating activist girlfriend Patrice, Laura Harrier, and surrounded by racists, both those he works with and those who are the targets of his investigation. The stakes are raised even further when Ron finds himself so drawn into the clan's world that he's having telephone conversations with the grand scumbag of the KKK, David Duke, <laughs> played here by Topher Grace. While Flip is expected to demonstrate his loyalty and resolve to the dim-witted but suspicious and highly dangerous local clan members. The idea of a black police officer infiltrating the clan with the help of his Jewish partner is patently absurd, and black clansmen is certainly plenty funny, But the really crazy, funny, absurd thing is that, well, it's real. As the legend at the film's opening tells us, this joint is based on some for real, for real (laughs) Certain things are embellished, of course, and the driver's character and ethnicity are largely constructs, but it's quite a bit more real than most based upon a true story Hollywood fair can claim to be, even including the phone calls between Stallworth and Duke. It will be unfair if John David Washington is continually compared with his famous father, but at this stage in his career it seems reasonable, and while he doesn't have the same range and endurance as Denzel, yet, nor quite the same innate authority or charisma, he gives a really great turn here. It seems that you can indeed inherit acting ability. Adam Driver, to whose existence I believe in, unlike my compatriot <laughs> over there, I like rather a lot when he's not playing Darth Emo, and indeed have done since I first recall seeing him in the Coen Brothers' Inside Lewin Davis. And he gives great support to Washington here, both in the comedic and the dramatic sides. From an opening featuring a famous scene from Gone with the Wind, Lee sets out to stall with almost an operatic overture, transitioning to Alec Baldwin's mid-century middle-class racist, ranting frothingly at a camera about the dangers of mixing races that, with a tweak of setting and wardrobe, could so painfully be of the now. This is balanced with footage from the despicable birth of a nation, the film credited with revitalising the Ku Klux Klan in the early 20th century, and a climax in which Harry Belafonte delivers a harrowing recital of a real-life lynching. Black Klansman is a polemic, certainly, 
and some portions could do with being trimmed. A far too long sequence featuring a speech by Kwame Ture being a prime candidate. And his sermonising brings some structural issues, with some blunt static scenes not meshing particularly well with the often more lightweight and certainly more dynamic sequences with the investigative team. But it's a deeply entertaining and thought-provoking film, as sadly relevant in today's USA as in the USA in which it is set, something illustrated powerfully by a coda that emotionally blindsided me in the cinema. The world still needs Spike Lee, and his passion, fortunately for us, seems to still burn without consuming, alongside no small amount of skill. Thoroughly recommended. Yes, I was gutted this snuck out of cinemas before I could get to it, so I'm eagerly awaiting this to appear in catch-up formats. But uh, yes, obviously nothing to add, but but it just seems like a good movie. Spike Spike Lee normally can deliver the goods, so I'm uh, gratified to hear that. Yes, uh, I think I'd slightly misunderstood this film at first. I hadn't seen much advertising for it. I think I may have seen a trailer at one point, but I'm not convinced I was paying attention or it was a really misleading trailer because the impression I got from it was that it was, in fact... Ron Stallworth, who went on to cover in the KKK, and, I was, and all mm. I could think of was that scene in Old Brother, Where Art Thou? When Tommy's um, in the KKK outfit. Mm. I think they're probably going to notice how did this work? <laughs> but no, it's not that. It's a, so a combined, a gestalt entity between him and Adam Driver, and one playing him on the phone, one playing him in person. And it's just, it's just so rewarding. And I mean, there are some horrible, horrible scenes in it, some really deeply unpleasant language used and deeply unpleasant attitudes. But Spike Lee has always been very, very funny as well. And it just, there's just a really nice balance there mm. of camaraderie, but with a sense of danger at the back, but just punctured often enough with that humour. Yeah. Just to stop it being overwhelming, because some of the things in it could just really be. You just lose all hope because it just the casual way in which some of the people in this talk about other people and as if it's just indisputable fact too, which always depresses me. Yeah. To hear people speak like that. It's crazy. Yeah, Spike Lee is a master filmmaker. And this is not his best film. And as I say it has a few issues, but it's it's so rewarding and I'm really, really glad that I got the chance to see this in the cinema so we move on from a clansman to a firstman I may have been the wrong <laughs> emphasis on that the first man so mm. this is um, several hundred thousand years BC no no oh. it's, it's actually about the I'm first man name. <laughs> on the moon Ryan Gosling suits up in Damien Chazelle's look at Neil Armstrong's path to the moon that's part biopic and part history of NASA now, to be almost dismissively reductive, that elevator pitch is perhaps all you need to know about the movie. Uh, it was certainly enough <laughs> to sell me on it. Uh, if you need a little more detail, and I'm aware that it always seems daft me trying to recap the historical record as though Wikipedia wasn't a thing, but uh, this starts with Armstrong's days as a NASA test pilot uh, and goes through the early days of the Apollo program and into the Gemini program as the Americans race to beat the Russians to the moon with perhaps humanity's greatest technological drive. 
This doesn't focus completely on the technology though. It's mostly about the human impact of the programme and the setbacks along the way. And of course how that affects Armstrong, who's already suffered the loss of a daughter to cancer. Of course, men in this era don't do emotion, so it's a typically restrained performance from Gosling. In many ways this makes it the exact inverse of the full Nick Cage, more on which <laughs> later. Um, so he gives a really excellent performance, it's subtle, it's nuanced, and yet gives great insight into Armstrong's character without reams of clunky exposition. He's aided by a highly talented cast to play off, particularly Claire Foy as Janet Armstrong, his wife. And there's also a list of great character actors in the smaller roles to fill the film out very nicely. Indeed, people like uh, Karen Hines and Jason Clark and Corey Stoll and Kyle Chandler. And they're all very good indeed. This distressingly young and talented Chiselle fella uh, wrangles things along very nicely, and alongside the, alongside the special effects, the, the rocket-based side of things that all look very solid and authentic, this is all an exceedingly plauditable experience. He deserves plaudits aplenty. If you want to be critical, which I suppose is the point of this podcast, you could argue that according to your particular taste, it's not going deep enough on the technology or on Neil's character, but to my mind, it's a pretty good mix of both. I'd perhaps prefer if this could have restrained itself to two hours but it's I'm not immediately sure what you'd cut without compromising the film's timeline which is why I don't edit films for a living I suppose so I really enjoyed First Man although gratifyingly for you dear listener I don't really have all that much to say about it it's it's an exceedingly polished and heartfelt film that's compelling without artificially inflating the drama of the real life events of the most remarkable and laudable scientific and engineering programmes that the US of A or indeed the world has undertaken it's a mind-boggling achievement and this film is a worthy monument to that it's perhaps somewhat conventional, um, which makes it hard to get very excited about, but it is just a really competently well-put-together film. It's just really good, and that's certainly highly recommend it to anyone who's even remotely interested in either space travel or good acting. And that's probably most people who listen to this podcast. It's certainly the good acting part. Maybe not the space travel. That's, <laughs> that, that's more open for discussion. But yeah, it's certainly a really good uh, put-together film. And Giselle's getting quite the track record. I mean, I wasn't a, a huge fan of La La Land, but I can't deny that it was a really well-made put-together film. So between that and Whiplash, eh, n- not a bad uh, set of three films to really kickstart your career with. No, I guess not. I haven't seen this yet. I very much want to, but it's only just come out as we record and I didn't have an opportunity to see it this weekend. Mm-hmm. But yes, as a general rule, there are exceptions, for instance, of The Notebook, but as a general rule, the fact that Ryan Gosling's there mm-hmm. is reason enough for me to want to see it. I haven't seen it, so I really have nothing to say, so <laughs> I'll, I'll stop now. It's, I would like to see it. It sounds good. You said that it was good. I will believe you. <laughs> Thank you. I won't, well, thank I you won't for believe your the story happened. <laughs> I won't believe the story happened, of course, because something, something fake, something, something Kubrick, something, something, these people scare me. (laughs) And yes, let's just entirely skip over the whole, they didn't show the flag planting thing because that is, yes, that's just manufactured outrage and I'm tired of that. Yes, it's particularly stupid, particularly because when when it's landed on the film, like the the American flag is really visible on, of course, the NASA patch on the suit and also on the... Uh, the lander itself and the whole film is about is a pay- <laughs> the whole film 
is being really complimentary towards the single greatest achievement, technologically speaking, that the American society has ever produced. You know, it, it is yes. it is one very big flag by itself. You don't need to show <laughs> another one being put up. I don't I don't get the criticism, but well, well, I do get the criticism. It's there because it's a useful political football to kick around. But no, um, th- this is this is as close to being a peon to America as you can get without it being sort of overwhelmingly cheesy. No, uh, but it's a, it's a testament to the bravery and ingenuity of the Americans who were part of this programme and uh, all those who funded it. So, yes, as <laughs> I say, it is a flag. <laughs> yes. Shall we move on? We move on to one of two films in this episode produced by Bloomhouse Productions. Upgrade is a science fiction body horror action movie from Lee Whannell the writer of the Saw and Insidious series, which, had I known before I watched this, would probably have turned me off. <laughs> I thought the same thing. I didn't, I didn't notice until the end, actually. I didn't know, really know where this came from. I got Lee Whannell, Lee Whannell. I know that name. Where's that come from? They eventually looked up and went, oh, right. <laughs> now, I haven't actually seen either, or any of either the Saw or Insidious series, uh, but I've seen enough clips and things and I've mm. a good enough grasp of what it is to know that it's really not for me. Yeah, I mean, um, I'll, give, I'll give it this. But the first Saw, which I think might be the only one he wrote, I don't think he might just be characters and all the rest of them, but the first Saw is... It, it's a good idea for a film. It just got hammered into the ground after, what, 11 sequels or whatever they're up to now? It's pretty silly. <laughs> yeah, so, yes, it, it wouldn't... Had I known that, it certainly would have reduced my interest mm. in it somewhat. But It tells the story of Grey, played by, not Tom Hardy, <laughs> whose wife, Asha, Melanie Vallejo is murdered in an apparent hijacking and who is himself left for dead, paralysed from the neck down. After spending months in a depressive state, confined to a motorised wheelchair, Gray is visited by Aaron Keane, Harrison Gilbertson, a tech entrepreneur who he had repaired a classic car for. He offers Gray the opportunity to try out his latest invention, STEM, a highly advanced chip capable of bridging the break in the spinal cord and allowing him to walk again. The proviso, though, is that he doesn't tell anyone so that they don't have to go through all of that pesky clinical trial and safety nonsense. Damn regulations. <laughs> well, nothing could possibly go wrong there then, right? The surgery is a success and Gray regains his motor functions, but it seems he now has a passenger. Turns out, stems an AI and it talks to him. After being convinced that he's not crazy by the voice in his head telling him that he's not crazy, uh, circular reasoning there, I think, Gray uses Stem's processing power and abilities to help him investigate his wife's murder. To do this, he requests the entire case file from Betty Gabriel's Detective Cortez, which she gives him, evidence and all, which I believe is entirely cromulent standard operating procedure for the victim of a crime. It's a Freedom of Information Act, isn't it? It's got out of hand. <laughs> Stem's insights lead Grey to a group of cybernetically enhanced soldiers led by a weedy, charisma-free Aryan whose Hitler hairdo is making me feel ill and Grey <laughs> crashes his party before discovering the identity of the real villain. Films like this almost seem designed to frustrate me. <laughs> there is the kernel of a good idea in here. There are some very stylish shots and the film in general looks pretty good. But the central conceit doesn't really work because as has been the case too many times to count in the past, the design of the world and the technology hasn't been thought through well enough. And in addition, and this is always a crucial thing for me, the main technology, even by the standards set by its own world, goes too far. 
As an example of the first issue, the weapons housed inside of the villain's forearms. What, beyond a very limited number of scenarios, is the utility of this? Sure, it seems badass and futuristic, but it's heavy, unwieldy, slow to reload, and it's going to set off any metal detectors they approach. To the second and more important issue, STEM's abilities are so extreme as to seem largely indistinguishable from magic. Look, I'll buy the base idea, and the AI, but STEM turns grey into some sort of vertical takeoff human, <laughs> with a large helping of Neo from the Matrix thrown in. But it should still be working within the biological limitations of the meat puppet that it's operating. Then there's the cliched Luddite protagonist, who could probably strip and rebuild an engine with his eyes closed, but plays the fuller into technology. I'm so dumb, I couldn't even press the right button to select home as a destination. Durr. <laughs> and then there's the fridging of Gray's wife, the genius tech entrepreneur on the autism spectrum, the first twist that I correctly assumed within seconds of a character's introduction, and the second twist I thought of halfway through as being a really daft place the film could go to that it never went to. These are the thoughts that I am cursed to have while I watch <laughs> films. And I can certainly see that someone less picky than me could find this very enjoyable. Hello! <laughs> or perhaps someone who has seen fewer films than me. I often think of the idea that someone is born every minute who hasn't seen the Flintstones. Or you can substitute the Flintstones here with any other much syndicated, oft-repeated series. Where is the crossover point between Jeng's This is such a cliche, but I have seen this a hundred times, and a trope simply being in the collective public consciousness? There is, however, one thing that I can give largely unqualified praise to, and that's Logan Marshall Green in the central role. It's not awards-worthy stuff, but it's really solid and, importantly, engaging. Acting for a large part of the film against nothing more than an off-screen voice is challenging, and our leading man... Well, he acquits himself pretty damn well. It's never corny nor manic, and he embraces the conceit well. I can give no recommendation for Upgrade, but, well, nor would I particularly want to dissuade anyone from watching it. In reality, I want to like it more than I do. In look and feel, it may seem like it could be one of that run of recent disappointing Netflix science fiction films, but it is in most respects superior. And yes, I'm still taking mute quite personally. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it sounds like you had a better time with this than I did, Scott. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I can defend any of the the plot points you pick up. Um, I just didn't analyse it in that amount of depth. It, it didn't seem the sort of film that warranted it. It was. I just thought it was. A, if you take it as a fun little action flick, uh, that's quite good. Uh, as you say, owing a bit of a debt to the Matrix. Um, I like the way it looked for a film that's not particularly expensive. Um, I quite like the futuristic vibe it's able to do, although it is very much futuristic by the way of sticking neon lights to everything. It's <laughs> though everything's like a fucking backlit Black Widow keyboard or something like it. Yeah, the, the action stuff worked well enough to be a sort of fun little scenes and the, the whole kind of, as you say, the, the, the central actor uh, manages to, to kind of ground it all quite well. The, the kind of revenge plot works well enough um it, it leads to a few scenes where i think i think you're right in saying that a lot of this has been what 
what will be cool to put in a film rather than anything that's really been thought through in terms of a, a, a properly fully functioning society. Uh, but yeah, for for me, that's just about enough. I can I can let it go when it's not really trying to say anything about anything, which this film isn't. I think it's just trying to be a, a little bit of a, a sci-fi escapism. But the only time it gets close to having any sort of attempt at relevance or a message is that sort of final twist in the last five minutes or so that you kind of mentioned, which, yes, would have been much better had it not made, even made the, the token attempt at going, oh, look, no, no, honest, look, put me in the same category as Ex Machina. It's like, nope, nope, you don't belong there. You you can go back and do the um, escape from New York bucket. You, you're in the silly, fun science fiction stuff, not the stuff that I'm going to attempt to yes. map any kind of meaning onto. But no, um, I enjoyed it. I think if you've got a passing interest in science fiction, action-y type stuff, then I think you'll get a fair bit of joy out of this. I think it's a fun watch. I'm not claiming it's anything more than that. I'm not going to say it's a, a film for ages or anything, but it's a, a diverting little 90-minute uh, or so experience that I think knows what it is and d- doesn't uh, let get in the way of itself too much. Yeah, I liked it. It certainly wasn't... I didn't find it a chore to watch. Yeah. It's just there were all those things that bothered me. Now, those... You know, really, as a general rule, the only way for me not to be thinking about that sort of thing during a film mm. would be for me to be dead, <laughs> which brings its own problems with the activity of watching films. Yes. You know, so <laughs> makes it a bit tricky. Yeah, it certainly doesn't have anything to say. Mm. If you could possibly... Just about scrape up the idea of some um, dangers of AI thing. It's, it's so <laughs> weak that it's barely not barely there. It's AI is bad. Okay, thanks, mate. Take a seat. <laughs> so let's move on to what, in many ways, I think may be the highlight of this podcast. It may also be the low light of this podcast. Yes, yeah, it's, it's hard to make your mind up, really, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, um, because I'm not convinced anybody involved that made their mind up on anything in particular. This is, well, it's a thing. Yes. So, having been quite worried last night that I had to try and explain what this thing was, I am pleased to find that, no, we had in fact changed after our initial discussion that I was doing this, that you were doing it, and I had simply forgotten, so I was worried for nothing. But uh, (laughs) Scott, explain Mandy to... Well, me to begin with, and the <laughs> listeners afterwards. Yeah, so there's, there's quite the buzz about Mandy amongst the weird film Twitter, which we've been known to hang out occasionally, um, so much so that it kind of leaked into the mainstream, as much as something like this can, I suppose. So what's the deal with Panos Cosmatos' second outing, a mere eight years after his debut? Well, I'm not completely sure, to be honest, but let's try and work through this together, shall we? Let's workshop <laughs> it. Nick Cage's Red Miller is a lumberjack, and he's okay. For a short while, anyway. Uh, Living in a remote cabin with his artsy girlfriend, Andrea Riseborough's Mandy, the unconventional pair seem very much in love and happy. For a short while, anyway. Uh, Q cult leader Jeremiah Sand, played by Linus Roach's appearance, uh, taking a passing fancy to Mandy and issuing orders to his assorted hangers-on freaks and geeks to procure her for some crazy mystical nonsense reasons that he may or may not believe, but his followers certainly do. The gang, including three Hellraiser-esque bikers who are, for a short while anyway, introduced as actual blood-drinking demons, uh, bring Mandy back to their lair, but even after a drug-addled indoctrination, she's not compliant with their wishes. The obvious next step? Incinerate her in front of a helpless red and leave him for dead. 
However, he doesn't die, and with the added indignity of them ripping his favourite shirt, it's enough to set him off on a roaring rampage of revenge. Stopping off at Bill Duke's home to pick up some murder supplies, he's told of the rumours of how dangerous this lot are, in case he needed more warning than he'd already witnessed, and hints are thrown around about Red's past that imply some some of the particular set of skills that will make him a nightmare for people that burn his loved ones to death in front of him. And so begins the cavalcade of vengeance, and framed like that, Mandy sounds like a fairly standard revenge film. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> Where to start, um, Visually, maybe the easiest. It's quite the most aggressively graded film I've ever seen, making Suspiria feel like a muted exercise in restraint. It's <laughs> a disorientating deluge of colour overlays that this by turns disgusting and pretty and distracting and engaging. It's really quite strange. Uh, but perhaps most notably, it's a Nick Cage turn that sets, or at least comes very close to setting, a new high watermark for full Nick Cage. His transformation from content hippie to frothing madman makes for a remarkable set of scenes, culminating in the bathroom meltdown you may have seen on your Twitter account, uh, with the remaining hour or so being no less memorable, particularly when combined with the extreme visuals on display. It makes what would otherwise be a series of slightly odd vignettes of violence become something truly memorable and remarkable, albeit in ways that I still cannot yet work out if she'd be sorted into a bucket marked genius or a bucket marked abysmal. Now, I'll say this, it's clearly far from perfect. Cult leader Linus Roach in particular being a non-entity that did not make for compelling viewing in the slightest and the half-hour-ish mm. stretch where he's given rain in the scenes with the cult members and the reduction of Mandy and so on came quite close to exhausting my patience. At about two hours, this film is half an hour too long, and it's this half hour in particular. <laughs> uh, in particular, when there's no motivation, creed or logic behind the cult and their actions other than Kanye West levels of crazy. Coming after... Oh, steady on. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you couldn't find any way to top Nick Cage, um, but, but maybe... <laughs> <laughs> At least I can see a through line to this that makes some sort of sense, yes. not Kanye West. <laughs> Coming after a slow start, which establishes Mandy and Red's peaceful life, I was getting a tad annoyed with the deliberate quirkiness of this and about to mentally check out before it radically switches gear and turns into a more whacked-out crank film. Now, the last hour is a mesmerisingly insane riot of sequences that, whether you're on board or not, absolutely demand attention with action and visuals that left me in gales of laughter. I'm assuming we're not to take this seriously, purely. Actually, I'm not sure of anything this film, or Nick Cage <laughs> in general, does. Uh, when he's interviewed, he doesn't seem like a maniac, and gives broadly sensible reasons for playing characters the way he does, yet this is clearly the work of a madman. <laughs> That's not entirely fair. This is an entire team of mad people dedicated to artisanally crafting a mad film. Your boring conventional judgments of good or bad are not an <laughs> axis that this film chooses to grade itself on. It's going for memorable, and it's most certainly that. <laughs> Bonkers. Couldn't make it up. Particularly the Cheddar Goblin. Yes. Yeah. Very, very strange, but I, I think I loved it. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know what... Uh, I, I don't know if I like this film or not. But I certainly don't regret watching it. Yes. <laughs> uh, I assume that Cheddar Goblin is a real vintage advert, but I, <laughs> what? what is a Cheddar Goblin? You, you think a Cheddar Goblin is a macaroni and cheese advert where a goblin vomits mac and cheese onto kids? Do you think that's a real thing? Yes. <laughs> the 80s were a weird time, Scott. Don't you know, didn't you ever wonder what the impetus for Ronald Reagan's Just Say No campaign was? <laughs> 
<laughs> it was the cheddar couple. <laughs> also, I'm going very much down a rabbit hole here, but the cheddar goblin talking about having 60% more cheese and other things than other cheese. But, 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 isn't like cheese just 100% cheese when it's actual cheese? <laughs> yes. Uh, there are many horrible things in this world, but of the things that are good and fine about this world that make me happy, one of them is Nick Cage. I am so glad that Nick Cage exists and he is doing these things for us. <laughs> and in my head, the Cheddar Goblin was a real thing in our real universe. Uh, and I'm happy with that to be, quite frankly. But yes, what to make of this film? I don't know. It, it is aggressively graded, you're right. It's, it's rather oppressively so at times. Yes. It is... I don't know, it's, whoever thought that Nick Cage had another level of crazy in him <laughs> and, and was given a vehicle in which to be this crazy? <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling, it's bewildering, it's terrible and great, often at the same time. <laughs> and there's imagery in here that I'm not 100% sure is actually imagery or it's meant to be something that's happening in the film. Like, for instance, there's a tiger at some point, but we're very conspicuously seeing Nick Cage go crazy while wearing a t-shirt with a large tiger in the front. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm assuming this tiger doesn't exist because it's just a representation of Nick Cage when he visits the LSD dealer hmm. or creator. But I'm thinking, given the rest of this film, no, it may actually just be a tiger. Yes. And he has a tiger there. <laughs> because... I think this is probably more documentarian in its approach. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. I think if I tried to attempt to map metaphor onto this thing, we'd be here all day. Um, so I'm just going to choose to believe that this is all entirely real. This all in universe. Yes. Um, I mean, I have questions about the film. I had questions from the beginning. What for? What reason was the film set in 1983? And I couldn't like beyond that. Some desire to use very. Stranger things like idents for a couple of yeah. places that didn't need idents at all, let alone yeah. <laughs> conspicuously 1980s styled ones. I, well, why is it set in this time period? There's very little beyond the 4-3 CRT television and the Cheddar Goblin <laughs> that's got much of a an 80s attachment at all. There's not any particular plot point that we would rely on not having a mobile phone mm. and having to explain that away. So, I don't understand that. Um, I think the mistake you're making is to try and attempt to map reason onto this film. <laughs> yes, I'm trying to understand at all. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's so strange. <laughs> and again, because that part of my mind is always going on. But, uh, okay, Nick Cage is, is going out for revenge. Okay, this makes sense. And he gets, he's getting tooled up. He goes and gets his killing supplies from Bill Duke. Great. Okay. That massive, ludicrous axe he makes. Hmm. Did he have a mould for that ready-made? Or did he, in fact, take time out of his vengeance to make a mould just to make that <laughs> axe? Either were possible. And, and why? And then, at one point, he takes enough cocaine to kill a small horse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it doesn't die. I should stop his heart immediately, possibly make his heart explode. <laughs> it is, it's bewildering. Now, as we've discussed several times, I don't particularly care for horror films in general. But I actually, this time, find myself wishing that the, suppose, uh, the first presented as supernatural bikers had been 
I actually thought that would have been more interesting. Yeah. Because there are some other hints that there is something supernatural going on because there's that, and it's one of the creepiest bits in the film, actually, the preserved giant hornet. Hmm. But that it seems to be alive, even though it's preserved. And like, okay, that's that's creeping me out. So I also don't like insects. It's one of the few things that will make me squirm. But it's just so, it's so trippy and so odd. And I love and hate this film, and I hate love it. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's so hard to describe. I don't think you could recommend it, but I also would like to recommend it. It is very much a film of opposites in many many ways, with the possible exception of. Johan Johansson's score that's the one thing that I know for certain that I didn't like Right, I, I've liked his music a lot, his collaborations with Denis Villeneuve in particular mm-hmm. are really good the uh, sort of otherworldly soundtrack to Arrival or the incredibly tense music in Sicario but here I don't know whether the issue was with his music or where and how it was used and because he sadly took his own life in February I mean I suppose that was after this was released at Sundance so maybe he did have input to how it was used but there's one particular example I'm thinking of is near the beginning and there's this huge burst of portentous music and it's meant to be like really unsettling and I'm watching the screen and thinking yeah but dude she's reading a book yeah. <laughs> it's all that's happening. Mandy's reading a book, and there is nothing significant about that at all, really. So that's the only like definite downside I have is that score. Everything else is is good, bad, yeah. and bad, good, <laughs> and mostly mental. <laughs> I certainly don't think I've seen anything like Mandy before. If I have, it's quite some time ago. Yeah, it's it's a thing. <laughs> Mandy is definitely a thing and I recommend that you don't watch it while watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I know what you mean. It's, uh, it's, what, what I guess I could say is that regardless of whether you wind up hating it or loving it, if you're the kind of person that actually bothers to listen to a film review podcast, then you're kind of the person who's going to want to be challenged by something, I would imagine. <laughs> this is certainly challenging on a number of levels. And so uh, unless you have a particular distaste for, I suppose, uh, is it fair to call this graphically violent? I suppose it is. It really felt like it is. But uh, unless you have some sort of uh, reason to shy away from that or for some reason you're a monster and don't like watching Nick Cage going mental, then uh, yeah, that's probably the reasons you would have not to watch it. I think it's certainly worth looking at, regardless of whether you like it or hate it. I would say it's considerably less graphic than Upgrade. Yeah, that's true, actually. Come to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Which you, you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah. Yes. Uh, also, a lot, it helps that a lot of the violence is, I guess, more Evil Deady 2 kind of violence levels rather than anything that's particularly coming across as realistic. Mm-hmm. So that that helps it feel a bit lighter, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> and Nick Cage going crazy in the bathroom, downing a bottle of vodka to get rid of the burning in his throat from the garroting. So it works, right? That's a fantastic scene. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, a lot to recommend or not recommend depending on your view but yeah I, I think it's worth watching and possibly both at the same time <laughs> this is the magic of Mandy yeah. it's it, it is the most interesting film I've seen this year so yes this is probably well worth looking at for that basis indeed okay should we move on to something more well 
it sounds really boring now, but ordinary yes. than Mandy, <laughs> which is every other film, pretty <laughs> much. A film from the writers of the almost willfully mediocre Horrible Bosses and its sequel is not something that would typically get me interested in a film, especially not when paired with its star Jason Bateman's pretty shoddy hit rate for big screen comedy. But that duo of writers, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, also wrote the hugely entertaining Spider-Man Homecoming. And I do like Jason Bateman a lot, as well as his co-star Rachel McAdams, so I figured I'd give this a go. A pretty strong word of mouth did no harm either. Directed by Goldstein and Daly, from a script by Mark Perris, Game Night centres on a group of friends who regularly meet to play board games and other parlour games. Is parlour games a phrase that people still use, or <laughs> am I just betraying my origin as a 19th century gentleman? <laughs> While trying to avoid rousing the interest of their super creepy cop neighbour Gary, played by Jesse Plemons, who wants to join them but is, well, a hell of a buzzkill. The preeminence in the group of the uber-competitive Max Bateman is overshadowed by a visit from his older, more handsome, more sophisticated, more successful, richer, etc, etc, brother Brooks, Kyle Chandler, who steals Max's thunder at every opportunity. He attempts to create the best game night the group has ever experienced by hiring a kidnapping investigation experience company, which goes hugely awry when Brooks is kidnapped for real. Although it takes the friends a good long and very funny while to cotton on. Big screen, big studio comedy like this is a fairly rare thing nowadays, perhaps because of too many flops and too little comedy. But I'm glad that Game Night made it through because it is, simply put, bloody funny. And what else matters really? Bateman and McAdams are engaging as the highly competitive, but never off-putting couple, and there's solid support from the whole cast, especially Sharon Horgan, as a co-worker brought in as a ringer by the group's himbo, and the previously mentioned Plemons. The plot is, of course, patently absurd, but it matters not a jot. The jokes just keep on coming. While apart, each smaller grouping is given their own moments to shine, but the films that it's most successful when the ensemble are together can work off of each other. In short, I laughed a lot and had a really good time out of ten. <laughs> I ain't seen this, and I'm realising it's now, because I saw a trailer for this and thought, that's a stupid idea, I'm not going to watch that film, and now I've realised that it's actually a trailer for Tag that I've seen, and I've cross-referenced it incorrectly inside my head, so <laughs> between this and I think uh, Dan the Host guys did a podcast on this, and it sounds like it actually goes quite funny, so I will probably dig this out at some point, but yes, ain't seen it so yes. far. Tag does look like a stupid idea, and also I believe has Ed Helms in it, which is generally not a good thing. No. <laughs> So, we shall move on, a complete change of pace again, to Detroit, Scott. Yes, just to, just to keep the comedy rolling. Uh, <laughs> yes, Detroit, with recent world events showing that the once-mooted post-racial worldview is not, in fact, coming to pass anytime soon. Detroit's release last year felt timely amidst the Black Lives Matter movement, and, well, sadly, it's just as topical a year later, even with Catherine Bailow's film centering on the Algiers motel incident in the middle of 1967's wave of race riots. The actual historical record of the events is not clear, so there is a degree of interpretation here, but I don't think there's much disputing that the white police officers grotesquely abused their power, leading to the deaths of three black men and the violent assault of nine other people. 
So, starting with describing the boiling point that led to the riots, the raid of a party for returning black Vietnam veterans, we shift to people caught up in the turmoil of the situation. The lead singer of an R&B group, Larry Reed, and his friend Fred Temple, played by Algie Smith and Jacob Lattimore, are cut off from their route home after the concert is cancelled, and they rent a room at the Algiers Motel. They meet the other patrons, and at one point are threatened with what turns out to only be a starter's pistol by asshat Carl Cooper, played by Jason Mitchell, in what I believe at the time was termed a prank. These are now called social experiments, or being a dickhole. Meanwhile, security guard Melvin Dismukes, played by John Boyega, is close by, attempting to moderate the responses of the mobilised National Guard, at which point Cooper makes the frankly idiotic decision to take a few shots out of the window as an ill-advised empowerment prank slash act of dickholery. (laughs) The National Guardsmen and the police respond quickly, with Dismukes along still trying to prevent undeed death. This doesn't go too well, as the police are barbarians. Ringleader Philip Krauss, played by Will Poulter, who we've already been introduced to as he shoots and kills a fleeing unarmed subject in the back, rounds up the guests and starts to use what I believe we refer to these days as enhanced interrogation techniques to find out who has the gun and who is shooting at them and things increasingly get out of hand as no answers are forthcoming. Things go entirely off the rails when in a fun game of mock execution, no one tells the rookie cop about the mock part of it, leading to the start of the tragic outcomes mentioned before. Now, this film rounds off with a look at the devastated lives of the surviving victims and the victims' families, and they search for justice that's entirely thwarted by a legal system tilted against them. The cast are uniformly excellent, Will Poulter being particularly hateful in his role, and mm. John Boyega showing chops that the Star Wars nonsense doesn't give him any room to demonstrate and overall it's just a great ensemble performance. Script is powerful and the direction matches that, building moments of great tension. Now, for all the critical acclaim that this gathered, which I agree with, were that not entirely obvious, uh, this underperformed at the box office, which is a shame as this is almost objectively a good film. It really does have all the characteristics of one. It is, however, I suppose, a hard sell for a fun Friday night at the cinema. (laughs) It's not possible to watch this set aside from its politics, and I suppose I understand why in our current situation more politics is not something most people want to countenance, particularly when every morning we must wake up and check that the supposed leader of the free world hasn't tweeted out to start World War 3 and instead has just picked a meaningless fight with a pop star because that's the world we live in now. Uh, amongst the potential white audience for this film, which I think I can speak for 100% of due to our shared skin colour, there's most likely a reluctance to face up to the consequences of the institutional racism the past few hundred years of colonialism and slavery has wound up with. I don't mean that particularly pejoratively. I do believe that outside, I assume, of white supremacist circles, most people do not believe they hold any racist views, just as they all think that slavery is a bad thing. But examining the consequences of this history is not something a lot of us want to do, especially for fun. Again, I get it. If you're a millennial on a zero-hours minimum wage contract in a Western world where wealth inequality is skyrocketing and we're expected to be less well-off than the generation before us, it feels like an insult to be told that you're still benefiting from this miserable chapter in human history. Yet we are. So it's surely in incumbent on us to examine this and Detroit provides a visceral way to feel just slightly a small portion of this legacy's toll on African Americans in a way that academic reports cannot. But that's making a case for Detroit as uncomfortable homework when, assuming that you can make a piece with the inherent politics from which it stems, this is an exceptionally taut thriller that keeps you on the uh, metaphorical edge of your seat. 
my actual arse was quite far to the back of the sofa, but nonetheless, it was a very tense, uh, superbly acted and framed film. Uh, the weight of history perhaps precludes this from being described as enjoyable. Maybe if this was fictional characters in a fictional situation, it might actually be easier to watch, but with these folks being real, well, the stakes involved makes this much scarier than any horror movie I've seen of late. An excellent film, and I'd have put it in my running for best film of 2017 had I got to it in time. Very good indeed. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add. I think I didn't find it quite as rewarding as you did. Oh, for me, this is like a four out of five film. It seems like it's a five out of five. Yes. Just as a, kind of a general idea of where we are, it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very difficult watch. Yeah. I would like to know quite how much it um, jibes with reality because it's one of those films where the horrible things that are happening are so extreme, it seems like... There is not a single person in the film, at least on the police and law enforcement side, not an absolute scumbag. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's 100% of them. And that, that just strikes me as, um, like, okay, there's institutional racism, one thing, but it seems like every single person involved, more or less, at, in any level, is just this horrible, hateful, racist scumbag. Um, and it feels a bit too much, so I don't know whether that's going to be overplayed or, in fact, things really were that bad. But it's, oh, it's one of those infuriating films to watch. You just seething with impotent rage at the fact that these despicable excuses for human beings are not only there, they are put in positions of authority where they can abuse that authority with little to no consequence, apparently. Hmm. When it starts off with that um, despicable racist number one, um, when he shoots that guy who's running away from him, as you mentioned, Scott, and the detective in charge says, yes, I'm recommending murder charges for you, but until then, go out and just go and do what you were doing. Just in that mind-boggling place to begin with. Hmm. So there's there's no checks and balances here at all, is there? There's no measures involved to actually stop things going wrong because you're pretty sure he just murdered someone but oh yeah so it's fine to go back to work mm-hmm. <laughs> crazy yeah there's some horrendously tense scenes in it and it's you think back then you think about how much of this film is just a bunch of people pressed against a wall yeah how much incredible tension and drama comes out of people standing against the wall well, I don't think it's as successful tension-wise as some of Catherine Bigelow's other films, The Heart Locker in particular. But it's, yeah, certainly a compelling film, very well made. I don't have a lot more to say, really. Other than that, the only issue I had with Ito is I'm not really sure that I like John Boyega a lot. I don't know if some of that is a hangover from the Star Wars films, but I know he's the one person for me that didn't seem to be quite of the same magnitude as anybody else in the film. I don't know if I'm being unfair, or maybe it's just... You know, sometimes you just you end up you don't particularly like an actor, so you can never really buy them. Mm. Maybe it's that, I don't know. Everybody else is is really good, and unfortunately for people with a lighter skin tone in that film, they do a particularly successful job of making themselves exceptionally hateable. Yeah. To the point where... I'd be quite worried about them having that run over into their real life, because, oh boy... Do they do a good job of being evil? Yeah. It's, I was thinking it's a long way from uh, Son of Rambo, isn't it, for Will Puller? Oof, yes, mm. yes it is. Yeah, it's definitely recommended though. Not an easy watch by any means. This is, this is not 
light fare at all. Yeah. <laughs> you probably picked up on that, you know, with the whole um, murder and torture thing, but <laughs> it does have the the problem too of being based on the real story. And so the ending, it's not rewarding. Yeah. Uh, what was Obama saying? The, the arc of the universe is long and tends towards justice. And I'm not quite sure that works. Certainly not in this, not in this instance anyway. <laughs> And I mean, this was made for made to be timed with the fortieth anniversary of those riots. But again, like Black Klansman, it's massively timely. It's like, yeah, what things in many ways have really changed all that much. Yeah, you know, forty yeah. years later, you think things should be massively improved? Yeah, not so much. Yeah, not for a lot of people. Shall we round off with something a bit lighter? Just cleanse the palate a bit? Yes, please. Let, let's do that. 89-year-old Agnès Varda, doyenne of La Nouvelle Vague, the French New Wave, and 34-year-old photographer and muralist, Gier, may not seem an obvious pairing, but their easy chemistry is one of the keys to the success of the charming documentary Visa's Village, or in English, Faces Places. Having met only recently with each being an admirer of the other's work, Varda and Gier take off around rural France in Gier's distinctive camera van, looking for interesting places and interesting faces to photograph, and using Gier's black and white building-sized murals. The geniality and repartee between the two friends belies the short length of their acquaintance, with the relationship between them marked by warmth, respect, but just enough friction and teasing that we could believe that they had known each other for decades, mm. or even that they were family. Their bonhomie and warmth is not just limited to each other, as they seem genuinely interested in the people that they meet, and they're never condescending or dismissive. Even the lauded young artist Gier, already described by some as the Henri Cartier-Bresson of the 21st century, is, aside from his insistence on wearing sunglasses all the time, a running joke in the film, <laughs> grounded and, for want of a better word, real, though it's Agnès that takes the lead with most of the interactions. They delight in the beauty of the people and the villages that they visit, in age and youth, wrinkles and smiles, and their art touches people. There is one wonderful moment in particular when a woman, the last resident of a row of minus cottages, sees her face inside the side of her house. At first her comment of there is nothing to say seems, well, it seems dismissive and unimpressed. Then suddenly and unexpectedly she says it again, with an entirely different inflection, and we see that she is profoundly, perhaps inexpressibly touched. It's a beautiful moment in a film full of beautiful moments. In fact, there's only one real downside in the whole film, and it comes, unexpectedly, from a dear, long-time friend of Varda's. The rest is entirely delightful, and the tour around La France Profonde and La France Peripherique from the landscape of the south, with which I am very familiar, with its near-white stone, dust and cream-painted buildings, to lonely beaches and areas of Normandy that, to my surprise, look like they could be in England, and all of the faces that accompany those places is deeply rewarding. There's an argument to be made that the film feels a little too scripted, especially when the idea behind it is that it is spontaneous, but it's a minor thing when the friendship and the duo's interactions with the French people are clearly so real. Indeed, there may even have been scope here for meta-documentary, a raw look at Agnès and Gier's conversations with the people they meet and why they choose to go where they go and photograph who they photograph. 
The film demonstrates that Jair's art is ephemeral, but, like him, I find great beauty in that idea, bittersweet as it may be, as I find great beauty in Visa's Village, which is, I'm pleased to find, one of the most rewarding films I've seen this year. It's just awfully nice, isn't it? Which is uh, it's not something you get to say a lot. There's, there's just very little uh, negativity in it at all. Uh, I agree with pretty much everything you're saying, uh, particularly that I guess the only negative I've got is the the little linking devices that they're using, the little scripted sections where they, they go between various places, which is a bit awkward. Uh, I don't think they need to be there. I mean, you could have just said, and now we're going to another place. I would have been I would have been ha- just as happy with that because, like you say, all the important bits you know, are the unscripted interactions with the people they meet, and that's, that's the best part of it. And, uh, and of course, the, the art itself, when it's produced, is uh, quite spectacular as well. So, yes, it's it's really interesting to watch this kind of thing because it's the sort of photo project that might kind of stumble across on a website and spend maybe uh, two minutes flicking through it and going, oh, that was nice, <laughs> and then, then never thinking about it again. Uh, but when you're actually forced to sit down in front of it for uh, 90 minutes and uh, properly contemplate it, it does actually feel a bit more special in that regard. So, uh, yes, it's just really, really nice. Absolutely enjoyable. And there's it's very easy to recommend, uh, certainly to anyone who's got even the slightest interest in photography. Uh, this is very much there. Not just that, it's really to recommend to anyone who's got the slightest interest in people uh, because it's as much just talking about people as it is about any kind of art project itself. Yeah, it's just really nice. I loved it. Yes, I did. Um, I loved pretty much everything about it, apart from the fact that Jean-Luc Godard ass hat. Yes. But yes, um, you say about the those linking devices, Scott, too. I mean, I don't think I even needed to say we are going here now. No. Maybe an on-screen caption of yeah. the name of the place, given there doesn't appear to be any particular order in which they are no. at least shown going to the places that it's, it's all over the place. <laughs> so, yeah, yes, I get the concept of a road movie now. Just move on to it, okay? Yes. I mean, there are occasional things like the engineer mentions that he met the farmer when he was hitchhiking. Okay, fair enough. That's a a little anecdote, um, well, barely an anecdote, but a little fact. Yeah. Um, that's fine. But the rest of it is like, this is where we are now. And if it's yes, if it's something that had a particular importance to one of the two, then a little bit more. But yeah. that's, that's such a minor nitpick mm. um, or nit to pick. And the rest of it is just so thoroughly bloody lovely. Mm. Yeah, I felt really warm inside watching this. Um, <laughs> And I watched. I kind of wish I'd watched this before Detroit rather than after it because it might really have been, been a good thing for the soul. <laughs> yes, thoroughly, thoroughly recommended this film. So, we'll round off the day with just a few feedbacks from the old Twitterverse. Particularly first from at M Toller, Matt Toller. He hasn't got around seeing Mandy yet. He's fixing that this week. So perhaps when this goes out, he'll be able to respond with some of the absolute insanity that's on display there. Uh, but he did like Upgrade quite a bit, although I spaced during the credits and spent the entire movie trying to figure out what it was about Tom Hardy that was just a little off. Yes. <laughs> Boy, he does have an uh, uncanny similarity, doesn't he? Yeah, um, I talked to Matt about this on Twitter last month, I think, perhaps. And since I did exactly the same thing with the same actor in Spider-Man Homecoming. Mm. <laughs> That seems an awfully small role for Tom Hardy. And why does he look not quite right? <laughs> then it's like, because it wasn't Tom Hardy. Ah, that would, that would explain it. But yes, he does look uncannily like him. At Sonic Yoda, uh, I thought Upgrade was a stylish little thriller with some great cinematography and a solid performance from Logan Marshall Green. A nice little surprise. Yep, I'm on board with that. 
and also from some at Mako Makita. Not, not that familiar with her myself. Hat uh, monster, oh dear. <laughs> Gosling gives a good performance in First Man. Has Craig seen it? He might not be able to take it. Don't know if he has or not, but uh, yes, it is a very good performance from Ryan Gosling, which is almost dependable from him at this point, really, isn't he? Uh, re Crazy Rich Asians and other Asian movies. Do you guys have a problem with casting, example, Korean or Japanese actors to play Chinese and vice versa? Because I, I, know, I know what she does, because we spoke about this. Um, yes, I, I, I do, as I mentioned mm-hmm. on, was it maybe our Technoir episode? I remember seeing mm-hmm. one episode with two Oh no, whatever one we did the Giver on. Yes. It was that. Because it was the Chinese daughter of the Japanese father played by a Korean mm-hmm. um and another one in that same episode. Yeah. Uh, yes, it's uh Speed Racer. That was the other thing. Mm-hmm. Was that, yeah, you know, Korean people and Chinese people and Japanese people don't look the same. Do you know why? Because they're not. So <laughs> Yeah. I don't I don't know how I feel about it in particular I mean, I guess Crazy Rich Asians gets a pass for me because so much of the crew behind it is also sort of Asian as well and I guess you take what you can get at least if not resorted to yellow face or anything of it so I'll live with the slight inaccuracies of Aquafina who's American but I think her ancestry is like South Korean and something and she's playing from someone from Singapore, it's like, okay, it's, uh, you know what I just say, close enough, but it's, it's better than nothing, it's better it's better than it being recast with a white guy, which is uh, the general oh. modus operandi, but... It's not being played by Scarlett Johansson. Yes. So <laughs> that's probably good. Yeah, I mean, yes, in, in general, it's a, it is a bad thing, but uh, I don't know, where you draw the line? I mean, how many English actors are playing people from... Everywhere around the world, I mean, all of Europe, all of America, <laughs> you know, are, are we going to get to the point where you can only have German actors playing German characters? Otherwise, it's, uh, you know, not getting into the, the sort of historical accuracy of it. I mean, I guess the, the line for me generally comes down to if it's a sort of a role that's supposed to have some sort of re- basis in a, a realistic character. Like, if it's a character that's steeped in the traditions of one particular area and you cast an actor from somewhere else, there's a certain verisimilitude that's not going to get executed there but I, don't um, know. <laughs> I mean it depends yeah it depends on so many factors but first of all the fact there's right with ethnicity yeah someone who's han chinese does not look like someone who's japanese yeah right so there's a, a clear difference there whereas someone who's english good chance that you put them next to someone who's german and don't let them yeah. speak you're not really going to be able to tell which which place from you start going south in Europe, get to Spaniards and Italians, it might be a bit, there might be more of a difference, but at the same time, um, European um, people mm. of European heritage, Western European heritage in particular, have had all of the opportunities, so yeah. you know. Could probably stop that. Uh, I mean, how many how many nationalities has Sean Connery made without even bothering to do an accent? You know, <laughs> one. Yes, just the one Scott in every film. So <laughs> one. <laughs> but uh, he pretends otherwise, obviously. But what no. do you mean? Of course, yes. I'm Spanish. <laughs> Spanish Egyptian <laughs> Scott. You can tell by my hat. <laughs> Although, uh, if we're going to talk about inappropriate accents in that film, oh, it's not Sean Connery's. I'm worried about <laughs> Christopher Lambert, but. The problem is to the while there's been some truly, truly horrendous examples. Doctor No. Yeah, always get back to Mickey Rooney eventually. Yeah, Mickey Rooney and Breakfast <laughs> at Tiffany's and there are plenty of other things. The end of the sixth happiness, 
because I think of things too, like the idea of, of blackface and the idea of someone putting on makeup to look at something else. In theory, there isn't actually a problem. So if anybody does it, because they're not to the point that you're trying to belittle someone or ridicule someone, it's like you're just, it's a character, right? Mm. And I have no problem with that. But people with our skin colour have so abused that they've basically ruined it for everybody. So it just, it's <laughs> off limits for people with our skin colour because people in the past ruined it because they did bad things with it as opposed to just playing a character or something. Uh, and I think that comes into it as well. It's like, yeah, kind of sick of this and also... I've sort of lost my train of thought, I'm sorry. But, uh, yeah, you were asking about playing, like, Koreans playing Japanese and Chinese, etc. stuff. And yes, it bothers Mako, it bothers me a lot, always has. There's always at the back of your mind there that idea of, well, they all look the same, don't they? <laughs> and I think it's got to be part of it. Yeah. Uh, whether people actually believe that or whether the people who make the casting decisions believe that and that's sufficient for it to happen but yeah it's just not so good and somebody from South Korean ancestry playing somebody from Singapore but that's yeah, the main ethnic group in Singapore is Han Chinese I think I must mm. check that up. I don't do say that if it's a fact but again very different looking so yeah it's not so good then again so sometimes it's if the person is talented and will give you a better performance does that trump it? I don't know yeah, I know you stopped listening like five minutes ago, so you could, can you stop me now, please? So what we determined is we're not going to be able to answer that one today. <laughs> it's probably the sort of thing that deserves a whole episode, and maybe we'll come back to that, actually. Oh, so are you suggesting we do a, a horribly inappropriate casting episode yes. with Breakfast at Tiffany's top of the list? Yes. <laughs> oh, there are so many, though, Scott. Sean Connery's entire career. <laughs> John Wayne is Genghis Khan. <laughs> John Wayne! <laughs> Aye, boggles the mind, that one. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to an end, at least for today. So thanks very much for your attention. If you do want to get in touch with us, please do. Uh, Twitter at FudsOnFilm, Facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm, or podcast at FudsOnFilm if you're so inclined. We will most welcome that sort of behaviour. Um, but yes, we'll be back with you on the top of the month with some scary zombie films. But, um, well, maybe scary zombie films or... We'll see how it goes. Uh, but until that time, I've been Scott Morris, and I'm sure Drew Tamdale will wish you adieu too. I'm glad you're sure about who I am, because I definitely wasn't earlier. Yeah. So. <laughs> Fairly well.